Hi, and welcome to episode two of A Feminist Therapist, the podcast at the crossroads of politics and mental health. I'm your host, David Averick, psychotherapist and social worker, broadcasting to you from Baltimore, Maryland. This podcast proposes that the toxic aspects of America's social and political culture are directly linked to the increases we're seeing in rates of depression and anxiety, particularly in young people. Today's installment, which is actually a two-part episode, does not really require a trigger warning. In episode one of A Feminist Therapist, we explored the concept of allostatic load and used it to attempt to answer the question of why women are twice as likely as men to receive a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. If you checked out episode one, maybe you noticed that the arguments I was advancing are not commonly heard. I'm not just saying that to flatter myself. Really, ask yourself, why did the ideas in episode one sound unusual to you? Perhaps because you hadn't heard them before. But why hadn't you heard them before? To answer that question, you have to use your feminism, by which I mean asking that crucial question of who benefits from the status quo. In episodes 2 and 3, we're going to dive even deeper with major depressive disorder because it's the most common mental health problem to the point where it's reaching epidemic proportions. And people aren't talking about epidemic depression often enough, pretty much only when somebody famous commits suicide. Partly that's because depression is still really stigmatized, but also it's because we don't really know what to say about it when we do talk about it other than that it's bad. Neither are we seeing any real policy solutions being offered to address this problem. But what if this epidemic of depression and suicidal depression continues to spread? Have you ever been assigned a diagnosis of major depression? I have. Do you know anybody who has ever attempted or completed suicide? I do. So what tools do we have to actually combat this problem? Here's the thing. The way that we as a society understand depression is basically a scam. Our strategies for managing it are outdated and inadequate, and here's a big shock, the for-profit healthcare system is making things worse, not better. The purpose of episodes 2 and 3 is to ask the question of why that is, and also who benefits from the particular model that our culture relies on to make sense of something as terrifying and confusing as major depressive disorder. Quick spoiler, there are three groups in society that benefit. Psychiatrists, the pharmaceutical industry, and the ruling class. We're going to start with a basic overview of MDD so that we are all on the same page. This is not a complete or exhaustive list of the symptoms of major depressive disorder, and I strongly advise you not to self-diagnose based on any information contained in this podcast. Major depressive disorder is a chronic episodic mental illness that comes in three flavors, mild, moderate, and severe. Chronic means that it often lasts a long time. Episodic means that it tends to come and go, wax and wane. Some people with depression experience complete remission in between episodes. Other people just have times of feeling less terrible, and then the bad feelings come back. The descriptors mild, moderate, and severe refer to the extent to which the disease disrupts your ability to live your life the way you want. Interesting side note, the extent to which a mental health situation is disruptive to your life and the lives of other people is the easy way to know whether you have a quote-unquote disorder or not. So for example, let's say that you're an exhibitionist and showing off your body turns you on sexually. But you know that you can only do exhibitionism in the appropriate sexual contexts. Compare that with a guy who has a compulsive urge to appear naked in public, and that gets him arrested repeatedly, and then he loses his job and then his spouse divorces him. 
Those life disruptions are the difference between diagnosing exhibitionism on the one hand and exhibitionistic disorder on the other hand. But we're going to talk way more about fetishes and paraphilias in a subsequent episode devoted to sex offender registries. But just like you can have exhibitionism and have it not be a disorder, in the same way, you can have depression that's what we might call subclinical, that doesn't rise to the level of a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. When I'm diagnosing depression, I reserve the severe label for people who are too depressed to hold jobs or maintain relationships, and or if they have a lot of suicidality, and or if they have depressive psychosis, which means that there are psychotic features present like hearing voices. Most people with depression, myself included, have mild to moderate depression with the occasional spike. The symptoms of depression break down into four categories. Somatic, having to do with the body. Emotional, having to do with your feelings cognitive, having to do with your thoughts, and spiritual. Definitely there's some overlap between the last two categories. Somatic symptoms include agitation or a lack of energy, as well as disturbances in sleep, appetite, and sex drive. Cognitive symptoms include an inability to focus or pay attention, as well as cognitive distortions. This means that depression messes up your mind and causes you to misperceive reality. As a really common example, depressed people often have a negativity bias, which means that they focus too much on bad things that happen and downplay or ignore good things that happen. Common emotional symptoms include feelings of sadness, hopelessness, worthlessness, and shame or guilt. An important one is anhedonia, an inability to enjoy things that you used to like. The spiritual symptoms of depression, and this part you won't really find in the DSM, have to do with feeling disconnected from yourself and lacking in a sense of purpose. One useful way to conceptualize depression is to take all the different symptoms, somatic, cognitive, emotional, and spiritual, into account and ask yourself how depressed you are on a scale of 0 to 10 right now. If 10 means that you're actively suicidal and 0 means that you have no symptoms whatsoever. If your score is 4 or above, ask yourself whether it's time to do something to manage your depression, because depression is in fact super treatable, but more on that in a sec. So switching gears briefly, before we can look at depression through a feminist lens, which means dialing up our bullshit detectors, first we have to define one idea, which like allostatic load, will be really useful for us as we move forward. This is the idea of social construction. Social construction is a theory that comes to us from sociology. It's basically all about noticing what a particular group believes about a particular thing at a particular time. Here's a for instance. Let's say that you have a baby and the baby has a penis, and so it's assigned the gender male at birth. All of the presents that people will buy for you will be light blue in color. And if you have a baby that has a vagina, and so it's assigned the gender of female at birth, all the crap people buy for you will be pink. Associating blue with masculinity and pink with femininity is an example of a social construction. How do you know? There's nothing intrinsically feminine about the color pink. It's just a color. Here's another more important example. The idea of race is also socially constructed. I'll use myself here. I'm Jewish, and I live in Baltimore. Even though I'm not the whitest looking white person you'll ever meet, I definitely am white because I have white privilege. But as recently as the 1960s in Baltimore, Jews were not considered white by white Gentiles. And like African Americans, there were certain swimming pools that we weren't allowed to swim in and certain neighborhoods where we weren't allowed to buy homes. But over time, Jews became white. In the same way that Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants did not used to be considered white and faced discrimination based on that, and then they were. Race is a perfect example of how social constructionism is all around us at all times. We are accustomed to thinking about race as a fixed category, but actually its boundaries are fluid and they change over time. And that's how you know it's a social construction. Social constructionism, depending on what construction we're talking about, is an example of another structural force, like sexism or racism. It's the water that we're all swimming in. 
Once you learn to see social constructions for what they are, you start to notice them all around you. And in my opinion as a therapist, that's an important thing to do if you want to have good mental health. Because once you start seeing social constructions as they really are, then you stop blaming yourself so much for things that aren't your fault. Gender is also socially constructed, in a lot of complex ways. One of the main problems is the way in which women are socially constructed as emotional and men are socially constructed as rational. One effect of this social construction is the situation where whenever a woman has an emotion, men use that as an opportunity to discredit her and ignore her opinion. Meanwhile, in American society, men expressing emotions are looked down on. That's because feelings are the realm of women, which means that a man who expresses a feeling is effeminate. The reason that it would be a bad thing for a man to be perceived as effeminate is an example of sexism. If there was no sexism, being effeminate as a man wouldn't be a bad thing. Also, homophobia is part of that too. Anyway, that social construction has the effect of stifling male emotional expression. Even though men experience all the same emotions that women do, anger is the only emotion that's considered masculine in its expression, and hence it's the only emotion that men are allowed to have without running the risk of being called a faggot. That's why I often think of anger as a secondary emotion, especially in men, in that it frequently represents another emotion that's there underneath, but which can't be expressed due to internalized homophobia and sexism around the issue of having a feeling. I also think this is why the trolls on the alt-right appear so angry. What's going on is that they're afraid that white, cisgender, heterosexual, Christian males are finally losing their stranglehold on power in society, which they are, so they should be afraid. But because being afraid is for girls, their fear manifests as anger. Depression itself is also socially constructed. In your grandparents' days, it was thought to be a weakness of character. We can call that the moral failure theory of depression. Nowadays, depression is socially constructed as a biomedical illness, an organic brain disease, a chemical imbalance, a deficiency of serotonin. You also can notice how the trajectory of how we have thought about depression over the years has sort of mimicked the social construction of addiction just by predating it a little bit. What I mean is that we used to think about addiction as a moral failure, and now you hear people talking about it as a biomedical illness. Not that there's unanimity on this issue, a lot of people still consider addiction to be a failure of character. But you can also notice, for example, how racism plays a role in how a social construction gets done. Because if we're talking about, for example, a low-income person of color who has an addiction, maybe there's a part of you that suspects that his addiction is not actually the symptoms of an illness, but just a series of bad personal choices. So if we're being honest with ourselves and acknowledging that that thought is present, that's because in America, people of African descent are socially constructed as drug users and as lazy. A really important part of feminism as a theory is wanting to know which voices in a particular discussion are privileged and which ones are silenced. The social construction of depression as a biomedical illness privileges the philosophies of rationalism and empiricism, which are philosophies which value reason and evidence. Personally, I am not anti-reason or anti-evidence. Science is also fantastic at epidemiology, which is the study of who gets sick, at what rates, how long illnesses last, what are the symptoms, and do they respond to treatment, etc. Thank God that the medical establishment has done that work and is still doing it. And thank God also that they're finally starting to catch on to the importance of what's called social epidemiology, which is the study of rates of illness in the context of social inequality. And while we're giving credit where credit is due, in general, a biomedical model of depression is a huge advancement over a moral failure model of depression, because often it means that we're nicer to people with depression than our grandparents were, and also that medical providers take the concerns of depressed people more seriously than they used to. 
but there are some major minuses to relying exclusively on a biomedical theory of depression. It turns out that chaining ourselves exclusively to a biomedical model of depression severely constricts our ability to conceptualize both the causes of and treatments for this disease. Let's start with looking at the causes, which in medicine is called etiology. According to the NIH, genetics and heredity explain 37% of all cases of depression. That's important because it means that social and environmental causes make up the other 63% of depression diagnoses. Also falling under that 63% umbrella are negative life experiences or traumatic events, which definitely have the ability to cause depression. Sometimes trauma represents a freak accident that befalls an unlucky person and messes up their life. But in a lot of cases, we can see that the distribution of traumatic events within society is not random and actually has a lot to do with your skin color or your gender or how much wealth your family has. We're going to dive deeper on the issue of childhood trauma exposure as a manifestation of social inequality in a future episode, which is devoted to ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Anyway, the point is that a strictly biomedical model of depression doesn't create space for this other 63% of what causes depression. That's why the argument in episode 1 sounded newfangled, when it shouldn't, because it's actually like a pretty obvious argument. The reason that it doesn't seem obvious is because we live in a sexist society and also in a society which highly privileges the biomedical model of depression. Unfortunately, a lot of psychiatrists still subscribe to the so-called serotonin deficiency theory of depression, even though it has never been proven in a lab. Feminism says that necessarily, when one voice is privileged, others are silenced. When the medical model is privileged, what gets silenced are all the etiological factors that don't have to do with biology, genetics, heredity, or so-called chemical imbalances. But given that nearly two-thirds of the cases of depression are caused by social and environmental factors, why do we never talk about those? Why is it all chemical imbalances? We do talk about them a little bit. These days, it's more common to hear somebody complain about the fact that Instagram is making them depressed, which, by the way, it is because it reinforces certain depressogenic cognitive distortions that deflate self-esteem and increase self-consciousness. In my work, we often say that Facebook and Instagram give you the opportunity to compare your internal blooper reel to other people's highly curated and edited highlight reels. But anyway, whereas the biomedical construction of depression absolutely has been translated into the realm of public policy, for example, both Medicaid, at least in Maryland, and Medicare provide coverage for prescription medications to treat depression, the same is not true for the social and environmental factors that contribute to depression. For example, we are not seeing an effective policy response to rape culture, and that's not just because the president is a rapist. The other reason we're not seeing the response we need is because in contemporary American society, psychiatrists, medical doctors, are considered to be the ultimate experts in mental health. No other source of knowledge about depression is considered to be as valid as the opinion of a psychiatrist. So using our feminism, we need to ask, what are the consequences of privileging the voices of the psychiatric profession over all other forms of knowledge about what we call depression in particular and mental health more broadly? The main consequence is that it limits our options when it comes time to discuss how to prevent depression and how to cure it. Fine, so what are the policy recommendations designed to mitigate the impact of rape culture on women's mental health? I don't have a good answer for that because I'm not a policy guy, I'm just a therapist. But also, I'm not a woman, so I'm not the one most directly affected by that particular problem, which means that my opinion should not be prioritized in that discussion. 
but I bet that there are a lot of smart policy ladies around with really good ideas about how to solve this problem, whose voices are also not being prioritized, partly because of sexism and partly because we're too busy listening to the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, which is the psychiatry lobby. This is just a part of feminism, noticing that when one voice is elevated, others get sidelined. Power is a zero-sum game. There's only so much of it to go around. Meanwhile, there are other forms of knowledge about how to treat depression besides the knowledge offered by psychiatrists. For example, the value of maintaining social and familial relationships and providing nurturance and care for other people. This is a form of wisdom that has historically been considered the purview of women, but which has a lot to teach us about how to prevent and treat depression. Another example is the importance of living in balance with nature. Typically, this is a form of wisdom prized by indigenous people, and it should also be honored in a serious discussion about how to treat depression. Okay, and now moving on to the other problem with the over-reliance on the biomedical model of depression, which is that it severely limits our treatment options. Because rather than seeking to influence the social and environmental causes that account for 63% of depressions, instead, we're swallowing antidepressant medications at unprecedented rates. So the debate right now over antidepressant medications is pretty contentious, and I respect the fact that antidepressants have their passionate defenders, but personally, I am not one of them. So you're definitely welcome to call BS on that opinion, because I'm not a prescriber and I'm not a psychopharmacologist. And also, it's not within my scope of practice as a licensed clinical social worker to make any recommendations about medications, so I'm not doing that. Nor, by the way, am I arguing that SSRIs, for example, are useless. I took citalopram for a while during my second depressive episode when I was 23, and it helped. One of my mottos in life is, be reasonable a reasonable amount of the time. And when it comes to talking about antidepressant medications, I think that we should balance what feels true with what the data says. And there's a big bucket of data that talks about how antidepressant medications are only marginally more effective than placebos. Meanwhile, their side effects, which include suicidality, are notoriously awful. Among the most common are loss of interest in sex and weight gain. This side effect profile has become normal and accepted, as has the practice of trying out various medications at various dosages for months until you find something that works decently, or the practice of having to repeatedly up your dosage once you develop tolerance to the amount that you're currently being prescribed. Personally, when I took Citalopram, it completely obliterated my sex drive, which made me sad, because not having a sex drive was actually one of the worst parts of having real depression. I actually would like to sidestep this debate entirely by proposing that it's the wrong debate. I think the reason that we argue so much over antidepressant medications is because the medical establishment has offered us pretty much jack in terms of alternative treatment options. When we pretend that depression is exclusively biogenetic in origin, that it represents merely a chemical imbalance in our brain, it's only logical that we would then assume that treatment must necessarily involve messing around with the levels of chemicals in our brains. But in doing so, we ignore treatments that target two-thirds of the causes of depression. This is particularly true when it comes to the discussions around how we allocate research dollars. If we focused more on non-pharmaceutical interventions, and or if we stopped placing the opinions of psychiatrists far and above all other forms of mental health knowledge, the landscape of treatments for depression would probably look a lot better than it currently does. 
I know that I'm laying pretty hard into psychiatry here, and I definitely apologize to my friends who are psychiatrists. Most psychiatrists that I've met in my life are super smart and cool people. Many psychiatrists have influenced me a lot over the years, and I'm thinking of Sarah and Helen and Ryan and Meredith and my friend Andrew. I also acknowledge that the title of this episode of the podcast is a little bit sensationalistic. Psychiatrists do not like it when you're depressed because they are healers and they want you to be better. That said, there are definitely some very powerful psychiatrists who are complete fucking assholes with regressive political agendas, which they hide behind medicalized language and academic institutional power. The journalist Johan Hari, in his very good and very readable new book, Lost Connections, does a really great job using the tools of rationalist empiricist science to underscore the shortcomings of relying on an exclusively pharmaceutically-oriented approach to treating depression. In the beginning of his book, Hari points out a difficulty in diagnosing depression, which is that in many ways, MDD looks a lot like grief, which means that when somebody close to you dies, the way that you feel in your mind and body can closely mimic the clinical presentation of major depressive disorder. So what if major depression itself is a form of grief, an indication that something important has been lost? Hari says that the message of the biomedical construction of depression, that your pain is simply the result of a malfunction in your brain, causes us to disconnect from ourselves and to disconnect from others and the world around us. Hari says that four types of disconnection, from meaningful relationships, from meaningful personal values, from dignified work, and from nature, is at the root of society's epidemic of depression, and that reconnection with those things is crucial if we as a society hope to solve the problem that we're seeing all around us. In general, Hari's argument is that depression is a message that something's not right, that something needs correction. Medications merely dull the pain. They only address the symptoms of the illness, and not its root causes. The word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. So whenever we talk about addressing the root causes of a problem, whether it's depression or economic inequality or racism, then we're being radical. Okay, back to Hari. So one of the other ideas that he offers in his book comes from the field of evolutionary psychology. Evolutionary psychology proposes that human beings developed culture and society and technology fairly recently and that the brains we have in our head are structurally and physiologically the same ones that we had before writing in agriculture and advanced tech. The point being that our brains, and hence the ways that we perceive and process information, are best suited for pre-modern life in the wilderness as opposed to in an urbanized society in the late stages of capitalism. Within this framework, we can pose similar evolutionary questions of psychology as we would of biology. For example, what's the point of depression? Why does it even exist? Evolutionary psychology might posit that depression is a type of psychic pain, comparable to physical pain. Evolutionarily speaking, we developed pain receptors in our brain so that we would get information from our bodies whenever we were doing something that was incompatible with being alive so that we would stop. Meanwhile, the brain actually doesn't differentiate between physical and psycho-emotional sources of pain. It's the same receptors that get activated in both cases. And that's why, for example, you see opioid medications or heroin being abused by both people who have chronic pain disorders as well as chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. In evolutionary psychology terms, the pain of depression is an indication, it's a message that something going on in your life is out of whack, incompatible with thriving in the world. Perhaps it's that you're disconnected from your tribe, or maybe your body's not active enough. And in fact, being deliberate about social integration and about getting some exercise are two really important, really effective, non-pharmaceutical interventions to treat depression. Or perhaps, as Hari suggests, depression represents a submission response, the way that a bonobo with the lowest social status in his group will assume a submissive posture to the alpha bonobo as a strategy to avoid further beatings and humiliations. 
what if part of the problem is that our society is set up in such a way as to humiliate us and make us feel less than other people? For example, with sexism and racism and transphobia and homophobia and income inequality. And that those things are causes of depression. Because they are. That might be one explanation for why depression is so much more common in poor people. Hari lays out research that explores how the more unequal a society, the more prevalent are all forms of mental illness. And that's true whether you're talking about two different countries or two different states within the United States. The idea there is that poverty itself is one thing, and it sucks, but poverty in the context of deep and growing inequality is particularly humiliating. Within a social hierarchy, the only thing worse than having a low status is having an insecure status. And in a highly unequal society, a lot of people have to spend a lot of time thinking about their socioeconomic status. How much do you worry about your own socioeconomic status? Another crucial question here is to ask whether we take deep and growing income inequality as a given, as a fact of life. Economic inequality is a public health issue, and it requires an appropriate policy response. It goes without saying that the recent Republican tax giveaway to the 1% was a huge step in the wrong direction. We're a little more than halfway through our conversation about the social construction of depression, but we're going to end this episode here for the sake of convenience. But make sure you check out episode 3 for the thrilling conclusion of our discussion about depression. Thank you for listening to A Feminist Therapist. If you'd like to reach out, please do so. You can find me on Twitter at FeministMHTX. I promise I'm going to learn Twitter really soon. Instagram at a feminist therapist. You can also email me, a feminist therapist at gmail.com. If you would like to be interviewed for this program about the sociopolitical aspects of your mental health condition, please reach out at your convenience. If you live around Baltimore and you want to do some therapy with me, definitely reach out as well. Thank you so much for listening to A Feminist Therapist. My name is David Averick. Have an awesome day.